we don't have to let go of our belief that God is coming soon to still do things in a way that is, is responsible and is thinking about being here in the long run. Yeah. It shouldn't be blasphemy to talk about 50, 100, 200 years from now. And for some people, they get real nervous when you start talking that way because they feel like, well, you just have a lack of faith. Well, I would challenge that. I, from every generation, since the beginning of time has thought that they were the last generation. I'm pretty sure Adam and Eve thought that when God explained to them the plan of salvation, that they would live to see that. My parents were told when they converted in the early 60s that they were the last generation. Well, we're here still, and it's not taking away from the fact that they could have been the last generation, but they weren't. And so the decisions that were made then are affecting us now and affecting the rest of the planet. Well, welcome back to Advent Next a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are continuing our talk with Dr. Daniel Gonzalez-Sokolowski, professor of ecology at Andrews University. Last week, we discussed the importance of developing something called a land ethic, where we begin to develop a moral sense for how to interact with natural resources and other creatures that inhabit this planet. This week, We are discussing what we as individuals, as a collective and the church, can do about being more mindful regarding our impact upon the planet. Before we get started, we want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. What are the implications of that? The implication, like, like this butterfly I was telling you about that I was um, studying in the fifth grade mm-hmm. or that I did a report on in the fifth grade. Mitchell Sater, it's called. Um, it's a tiny, tiny butterfly. The adult will only flutter around for like a week. Mm. That's its entire life. It just, it pupates. It uh, finds a mate. It, it, the female lays eggs and then she dies. The that's male a, dies. a lot of pressure for five days. Yeah, well, <laughs> they live in small habitats, so they, they have a way of finding each other, use pheromones and whatnot. Mm. Um, then the eggs will stay dormant over the winter and then they'll be in the cycle again the next spring. Mm. It's an amazing uh, structure. Um, so if this species disappears, it's only found in like a handful of locations in Southwest Michigan and... Uh, and northern Indiana. That's it, globally. It's an endemic. Endemic means it's found nowhere else. We lose this butterfly, so what? Well, um, we've certainly lost many species and we're continuing to lose species, right? Uh, Where we lose all members of that species. And that's tragic because you can't get them back. But what does that really mean ecologically? It means that now whatever that service, if you will, that or whatever role that species played in the ecosystem is no longer available. Mm. So there's a, there's a cascade that occurs. There might've been um, organisms that depended on that butterfly for pollination, or maybe uh, organisms that depended on that butterfly as a food source. Well, now they're gonna be affected and they're gonna have to either switch over to something else or meet the same fate. And so as you start plucking pieces of the web away, it begins to crumble. It's like a house of cards, right? Wow. And that's the real fear, right? When we, ecologists talk about the tipping point, mm. what will that tipping point be before you get to sort of the, the, the ecological cascade where the ecosystem collapses? 
Wow. I mean, yeah. that's pretty harrowing. And I mean, we see this everywhere when it comes to whether it's the coral bleaching that's happening and how that's affecting. I mean, just even the sea alone uh, is, is such a crazy ecosystem and it's a very delicate ecosystem. But, you know, the overfishing of, of the, the, the seas or things that we're doing, the global warming, how that's affecting things, it's going to have a more uh, global effect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is where um, global treaties are very important, mm, right? Okay. Because there's only one ocean. The names we give it, you know, Arctic, Pacific, Atlantic, these are just geographical inventions. But there's one ocean. It's, there is no separation of those water bodies. They're all connected. And so um, what happens in one eventually gets to the other. Plastic is a real issue. Like we only started making plastics in, what, the 1940s? So we're 80, 60 uh, years into uh, making plastic. And we're producing plastic at uh, tremendous rates. Yeah. Um, where does all that plastic go, right? Plastic is made from petroleum-based products, and it, uh, it doesn't disintegrate. There's no natural breakdown of that plastic. There is no natural existing uh, mechanism for it to be broken down uh, to be recycled back to the nutrients that, that biological life uses. Right. So everything else on the planet is built on this system of perpetual recycling. Energy flows through the system. The, sun, uh, the sun's energy fuels life by uh, you know, harnessing uh, or uh, allowing plants or, or anything that photosynthesizes, so algae and, uh, and uh, protists and whatnot, uh, some bacteria, they're able to use the sun's energy to, to take CO2, carbon dioxide, and, and make it into um, sugars, right, into glucose. And then everything else feeds off of that. You and I feed off of that. Right. Um, all the nutrients involved cycle. So, so everything else is cycling. Nitrogen is cycling in its, in its system. And so what's fundamental for everything to work is that when things die, there needs to be organisms that break everything down. And there's a whole suite of organisms that are devoted to that. Fungi, the whole kingdom of fungi, that's what they do. They deal with dead organic matter, breaking it down so it could be reused again. Plastic violates that system. Interesting. There's nothing that plastic breaks down to that can be then used again. And so mm. it doesn't go back to being that fossil fuel that it originally was because we made it synthetically and we didn't do it with ill intention. Yeah. But now, many, many decades later, we're finding plastic everywhere in places that humans are not around. Mm. So the deepest parts of the ocean, plastic. Uh, uh, desolate areas, wherever in the planet, right. plastic, in the forms of microplastics, right? Mm. Windblown, uh, microplastics. The sun will break down the plastics into small beads, but it's still there. And then we ingest that. So we, you know, fish have plastic. Bottled water has plastic. Um, we are full of plastic if we, <laughs> if we examine. And, and we don't know the full effect of that. It has wow. not been looked at because we're sort of the plastic generation, you and I. Wow. Isn't yeah. that, that is so interesting. You know, somebody who's listening and is like, what can I do? Or, or is, there, is there something, you know, stories of hope? I remember maybe 10 years ago, and I don't know whatever happened to this initiative, but they were looking at um, using algae farms to create uh, biodiesel to be able to run uh, cars off of, you know, but I don't know where that has gone since then. Like, are there interesting inventions that are taking place? Is there a way that we can innovate ourselves out of this problem? Well, yes and no. Okay. 
technology is not going to solve our problems because part of the problem is a moral problem, mm. right? And this is where we get to the question of um, what kind of planet do we want to live in? Technology is amazing and there will be uh, revolutionary things that are invented in the future that will certainly buy us more time. No one is denying that. Um, that's just human ingenuity, especially when we're pressed against the wall and we have to come up with something. But this problem is bigger than what technology can solve in that the root of the problem is our own behavior. Mm. And so here we are, 2020, um, following that growth curve that has been well uh, um, articulated. And the question is, where will we top off? At, w at what point is too many humans on the planet too many? Yeah. Um, some would argue we're already at that point because it depends on how those humans are going to live. If everyone were to live the way that um, first world nations live, particularly Americans, then there's too many already, mm. right? We would need several planets to accommodate the resources necessary. Wow. So it's either uh, we, we continue this disparity of some have a lot and some and, and, and a lot of people have very little and keep growing, or we... Uh, try to remain at the population level that we are and then try to balance out a little bit uh, the allocation of resources. These are difficult things. Wow. You know, these are, we're talking about very, very controversial and difficult adjustments, if you will. Wow. Yeah. I think that's interesting. So, you know, like you said, we, we might be able to buy more time with technology, but there's a, a moral issue and it has to do with how we live. Yeah, because it ultimately comes down to... Um, the respect that we have for the rest of nature, the value that we put in it. This is where that land ethic comes in. If we just look at the rest of the planet as um, resources that we should use or should have access to, then we're going to be in trouble one way or the other, no matter how much technology we have. Yeah. Right. This is where I make that argument that um, depending on how you look at creation, if you look at creation as a holistic thing where we are a component of God's creation, mm. then you're less likely to, um, to, to indiscriminately utilize the resources just for human purposes or for, for greed, if you will. If you look at the creation um, as two isolated events. God creates man and then he creates a garden or maybe he created a garden first if you take Genesis 2 and then he creates man and he places man in the garden. Then there's this like us and them, right? This clear distinction between humans and the rest of creation. And then we're sort of um, exempt from the responsibility of anything that happens to the planet, especially if you tie that to the end is near, we're getting a new planet. Yeah. So that's a, that's a dangerous formula. I challenge my students, what does it even mean to be human? Because in, in biology, um, everything depends on everything else. It's very difficult for me to go in and pluck out an organism and sustain that organism in sort of a laboratory scenario. It's very artificial. That's not the way that nature works. Yeah. Even you and I, uh, you know, now we're in this um, microbiome revolution, right? Where we're tying human health and psychology and all these things to our microbiome. What is our microbiome? You and I are an ecosystem. Mm. I mean, there's, we're a multicellular eukaryotic organism, um, which has consciousness, that's you and me. But this body also shares a ton of uh, uh, cells that aren't mine, that, that are prokaryotes, that are bacteria. Mm. Uh, for every one cell that's in your body that belongs to you, that has your genetic makeup, you have another cell that is a bacteria. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. Interesting. 
I cannot remove those from you. They do very, very important things. They make up your the flora in your stomach that help you digest things. They make up the flora in your mouth that helps do things there. And, and so the more we realize that there's this intimate relationship between the, the metabolism of those um, of that microbiome and, and things like cystic fibrosis, things like, uh, you know, we're, we're finding all these links where diseases are tied to imbalances, not in your cells, in the cells that are living with you, your sort of symbiotic cells. So what does it mean to be human? Wow. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that's so fascinating to look at the body as its own ecosystem, because one thing I took away from your talk was that we don't tend to look at ourselves as cohabitors of the planet. We, like you said, we look at ourselves as we're the ones here and we are going to utilize these resources. Thank you very much. Right. But the fact that your own body is, is this, its own ecosystem, there are things that are living there. And it, like to be a good steward of your health means to be a good steward of the ecosystem. Right. And they're not squatting. You, you, they are a part of you as much as you are you. I mean, this is where um, I, I have no idea how to reimagine the human mm. without that. That is, a, that is a part of being human. Wow. So how did you get into, I mean, kind of with everything that's happening and the world's going upside down, you are working with manatees. Yes. <laughs> so I kind of fell into the manatee field. Um, in yeah. my undergrad, I worked uh, with mammals. Okay. I've always been interested in mammals. And um, there was a, a paleontologist that uh, worked with squirrels, and that was the closest thing that I could, you know, that was a mammal. It was that or birds or I forget what else was available at that time. And so um, that was the interest that I went in. And then for my master's, I, I fell into a manatee project. And then once you specialize in something and you get to know the literature and you get to know the, the professionals, you sort of become um, an expert in that. And so it, it, it becomes second nature. Although I tried, there was, a, there was an effort to switch over to primates uh, for my PhD. I worked under a primatologist, uh, as I mentioned before. It's just that uh, a manatee project popped up during my PhD. It was just too tempting to, to mm. say no to, and I went right back into it. Mm. So what was this manatee project? And, and something like a manatee, you mm -hmm. know, who just kind of floats around, who's very harmless. Some people might say, what's the importance of this animal remaining in, in our oceans? Yeah, lots of people actually say that. Florida's really interesting because um, nobody's on the fence, right? People either hate the manatee or they love the manatee passionately. Mm. And it's really interesting to walk into that. Um, I, you know, people are like, why do you love manatees so much? I, I don't signal manatees out. That happens to be what I know the most of because that's the lion's share of my research. But I don't have any greater love for manatees than I do for, I mean, I, I'm like a little kid when I go into a forest. I want to touch and experience everything. And I, I, you know, if it's a boa constrictor, a manatee, an otter, they're all amazing and cool to me. Mm. It's just, that's what I happen to specialize in. Um, but I've dabbled. I mean, I've, I've uh, worked with um, the Eastern Massasauga, our only venomous snake here in Michigan. We have a little rattlesnake that lives in very specific habitats. Mm. Had a master's student that worked on a project with them. And, um, and right now I'm working with a collection of, of uh, mammals from, from Peru. So my interest is broader right. than manatees. Uh, that just happens to be what I would be known for. So, so in your specialty, how are manatees important to, uh, to the ecosystem and the planet? Yeah, so I guess, you know, in many senses, um, I feel bad that we even have to justify mm. the existence of another organism 
because I feel like intrinsically they all have their own value. Right. You don't see manatees getting together and saying, well, what is the value of humans if humans weren't around? The truth is if humans weren't around, um, a lot of other things would be better off. You know, uh, that's a harsh thing to say, but we don't really play a vital role for anything other than maybe our domestic animals mm. that have greatly benefited from us. Uh, but manatees, they, they have ecological roles that they fulfill. You know, they, they certainly recycle nutrients. They consume a lot of algae and seagrasses and, uh, and vascular freshwater vegetation. And then as that goes through their system, they are going to release nutrients, you know. Um, so there's a fertilizing event that occurs there. Um, so they play a role similar to what a terrestrial herbivore would play. Mm, yeah. That's interesting. And I love that what you said, you know, we shouldn't have to justify the existence of living organisms. And I love the way that God in a lot of ways is an artist and uh, how he creates and the fact that not everything in our ecology is, is, um, is utility. It has utility to it, but it's not purely utilitarian. You know that there's a, a sense of beauty and art and creation, and like, wow, look at this magnificent cre- creature who has a purpose, um, but may not, you know, may not be so obvious. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to philosophical views, right? Mm. If you view the world as essentially a backstage, a prop, mm. creation as a prop to humans. So everything was sort of built for our pleasure and for our amusement and to, to give us a better quality of life. Then what do you do? Well, when you see a tree, you say, well, what value does that tree have to me? What product can I get out of that tree? And if, it's, if and I can't come up with something, then um, I am justified for not taking care of it. Yeah. Part of the problem with that is that you disregard, some of the problem is that we have no clue all the things that, that nature provides for us. Just because we don't have something that, that we can extract from it now doesn't mean in the future we won't be able to, through new technology or new knowledge, find that maybe that's got the cure to cancer, for yeah. all we know. That's one. But two, we also are disregarding all of the uh, relationships that exist in nature. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is something that we are very, very fond of, let's say our crops or whatever, um, and we don't realize that by uh, disregarding bees... Uh, we are essentially killing our own crops. And so it's, it's understanding how the system all comes together. Yeah. And, and I think, arguably, you should be able to defend most any organism that exists that is not an invasive organism, that is an organism that we accidentally introduced into a place that's kind of wrecking havoc. So things even like mosquitoes, like, you know, oftentimes students will say, well, what on earth would I want mosquitoes around for? Why would I want mosquitoes? And I say, well, mosquitoes provide food for a ton of stuff. In fact, every bat species we have here in Michigan, all nine, are insectivores, Mm. right? They all eat mosquitoes. So if I were to wipe out all the mosquitoes, that's food for all those bats. All those bats are gone. Mm. Well, what are those bats good for? You know, you you start getting through this um, um, never-ending question of what is it good for, but what you're really saying is, what can I get out of it? And I I don't think that that's how God views nature. Yeah, no, that's so true. In fact, I watched a a documentary recently called The The Biggest Little Farm. I don't know. Have you seen that one? Mm -mm. It's so good because they they, they try to have this principle of building everything together where all of the animals, uh, even even the coyotes that they thought were the enemies and they were coming and killing their chickens, uh, they found a way to navigate that so that actually the coyotes started eating the uh, you know, the gophers who were, were pulling up some of their crops. And so they found a way to navigate, like, mm-hmm. how do we work with the perfect ecosystem? And so... Previously, you asked me, are there like success stories? And I, I, I kind of dodged the question. And the truth is there are many, mm-hmm. right? We, we uh, enacted rules, laws, 
the um, Environmental Protection uh, Agency was put together. We enacted the, uh, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. These were all enacted, um, you know, ironically, during the uh, Nixon administration in the 70s. And they have teeth. These aren't just foofy rules that or, or acts that you know slap you on the wrist if you don't do it. They they have legitimate fines and you know there you can be uh, legislated and there there can be incarcerations for violating these acts. Wow. And the effect has been huge. And we have seen species that were on the brink of extinction. Some that we brought down to uh, like double digits. You know the the condors, California condors, the bald eagle, the emblem of our nation. Yeah. Uh, we we through uh, pollution, uh, the use of certain um, toxins, brought it down to to you know we we drastically reduced the range of the bald eagle and and their numbers were uh, suffering greatly. That species has now rebounded. Mm. The bald eagle is is back to its former range. We see bald eagles here in Bering Springs now. Wow. So it's a tremendous success story of um, enacting a rule that at the time maybe seems unnecessary or harsh and has real world um, um, implications, re- implications yeah. and results. Look yeah. how we have cleaned up our air. Mm. I talked to the old timers about um, the air quality in Southern California. Uh, before the, uh, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s, wow. before the enactment of this. Um, talk to them about water quality in streams and water bodies. Lake Michigan was heavily polluted. Mm. You wouldn't want to swim in Lake Michigan. And and now we don't think twice. We go back and, and, and there's no problem. Wow. The issue, though, is that we get complacent. Mm. We take... The, sta- the state that things are in for granted and we forget that there was effort to get it to that point. And so we fall through this, uh, you know, this vicious cycle of um, things are bad, we enact protection, we recover, and then uh, that generation forgets what it was like and now everything is fine. So it's like, ah, these rules are too harsh. It's holding me down, you know? Yeah. And so we, we fall asleep at the wheel and corporate interests break those down. We're seeing that right now. Wow. Uh, this current administration has severely pushed back uh, environmental regulations across the board. Mm. And we will see the effect of that mm. um, in the next, you know, 10, 15 years or, 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 or sooner. And uh, so we take for granted that what we have and, and, uh, and, and w- the hard work that it's taken to get to that. But I think the lesson there is that um, protection works, enforcement works, rules work. And so I would encourage people to not throw their hands up in the air and say, there's nothing I can do and, and realize that, no, there's a lot you can do and, and your vote is very powerful and your voice is powerful. You know, there's so many ways that you can get the word out now with, yeah. with social media and, and uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword, I agree, but we live in a time where it's much easier to get the message out and, and to organize. We talked earlier about um, you know, our collective bargaining power that we have uh, in civil society. But I think as a church, and, and, and part of why I wrote this article is that I, I'm a believing uh, Adventist and I, I love my church, but I also see um, the focus of my church um, neglecting this topic. And again, I don't think it's for for malicious reasons, but nonetheless, the effect is the same. So um, 
the end result is that we take very little, if any at all, consideration for our impact on the planet in the decisions that we make. If you think about the, th the infrastructure that we build, uh, what hospital or what school or what church uses uh, an environmental ethic as part of their decision-making for when they're building uh, a church. Yeah. Uh, we, don't, we don't think about the resources that we use. We don't think about how it's going to be sustainable or the energy type that we're going to use. Um, and we should. Yeah. We really should. We don't have to let go of our belief that God is coming soon to still do things in a way that um, is, is responsible and is thinking about being here in the long run. Yeah. It shouldn't be blasphemy to talk about 50, 100, 200 years from now. And for some people, they get real nervous when you start talking that way because they feel like, well, you just have a lack of faith. Well, I would challenge that. I, from every generation since the beginning of time mm. has thought that they were the last generation. I'm pretty sure Adam and Eve thought that when God explained to them the plan of salvation, that, that um, you know, the, the serpent's head would be crushed by by the heel of the woman, um, that they would live to see that. Mm. Well, here we are thousands of years later, and certainly even with the model of our own church, the early Adventists thought that they were the last generation. My parents were told when they converted um, in the early 60s that they were the last generation. Well, yeah. we're here still, and um, it's not taking away from the fact that they could have been the last generation, but they weren't. And so the decisions that were made then are affecting us now and affecting the rest of the planet. Well, that's a really great point. And what's interesting is that, you know, we have an opportunity as a church to really be a light. And we see a lot of, you know, the secular community coming up to par with where the Adventists were about the health message. Yes. And you see a lot of that happening now. And we have that same opportunity to be the head rather than the tail when it comes to even environmental or ecological issues. Yes. And, and uh, you know, some people I've heard are hesitant to jump on the environmental train, if you will, uh, because, you know, the Pope has said some things about uh, climate change and, and we don't want to do what the Pope has said or that, uh, you know, there are secular groups that, that, that push this, particularly scientists, etc. And there, you know, there's some hesitancy there. And I just don't understand that at all. Because I think that we should evaluate movements uh, based on how they coincide with our faith and our beliefs. And if they coincide with our beliefs, then uh, we should be supporting those, right? right? Um, there's no question that the biblical argument for environmental stewardship is strong, very, very strong. In fact, there's language in the Bible, I'm sure when you spoke with uh, Dr. Wells, that gives warning to those who destroy the planet, and, and it's not a nice result, right? So yeah, I don't want to preach fire and brimstone, but certainly um, there's some strong biblical language about our responsibility towards the planet, and I think that um, we should, like you said, be on the forefront yeah. And there's so much that ties in with our philosophical views, right? This notion of living simplistic lives, mm. non-materialistic, um, uh, you know, um, sharing things. I know it goes against the American sort of independent culture of everybody having their own stuff yeah. and keeping up with fashion right. and, and, you know, following this 
treadmill of, of consumption that is very difficult to break away from. But that's not, that's not the Adventist, at least in theory, that's not the Adventist uh, philosophy. Mm. And it seems to me, and when I see all these successful movements that are happening, and it was like, well, God gave this message to this church 200 years ago, it kind of seems like, well, God is going to have to work around uh, the ways that we've been stubborn and just get things done. And, and I think that sometimes that can be a rebuke to say, you know, step it up in some ways. Yeah. And, and do we have examples in the Bible of God commanding something or ordaining something that was time sensitive, that was, that made sense then, but doesn't make sense sense now. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So people will point towards, you know, God said at the end of creation, be fruitful and multiply. That's great when the planet was empty. Right. But yeah. be fruitful and multiply today in 2020 means something different. Right. What does it mean now to have a large family, for instance, um, versus 50, a hundred years ago, when you look at what human population uh, the journey of human population and, and the growth. I think the responsible thing now is, to, is to, to, to include a land ethic when we're planning our families. These are difficult things. You know, nobody likes to be told what to do, what to buy, uh, how many kids to have. But we either make these decisions or they're going to be made for us the hard way, right? Um, and, and like I said, we may not face those consequences immediately. Some of us will. We're a global church. We have Adventists everywhere. Mm. But not only our Adventist brothers and sisters, but the, our, our fellow humans um, will feel our decisions uh, directly. So there should be some pull in our conscience uh, when we make our decisions. Wow. So you mentioned that the power that we have as a collective, as a community, the ways that we can use our vote to kind of uh, enact cha positive changes. Yes. So how can the church work together as a collective community to be able to enact positive change? So if we use the same analogy, we as the church body, uh, the members, we can, we can make positive changes in our local churches in the way that we do things and, and how we make decisions. The student body can make positive changes uh, we forget sometimes that students are the, the paying customers mm. and they have tremendous uh, 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 collective bargaining power. They just don't know it. Mm. But if they organize and they demand A, B or C, it'll, it'll happen because at the end of the day, they have a choice and they can go elsewhere and they can seek places that follow what they believe in philosophically. Mm. So if this was something that is something that they value and they organize, then, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure that all of our universities would begin following suit. So if they say, uh, we would like there to be active recycling on campus, it would happen. If they say, um, we would like there to be um, some kind of uh, committee where anytime a new building is being proposed that you know, it follows some recommended, you know, uh, certification, external certification for following, um, you know, a green perspective, right? The, yeah. A certain percentage of the, of the energy has to come from renewable energies. The yeah. materials have to be sourced from renewable sources. Will we be able to build as much as we would have built if we did it the other way? Probably not, but we did the right thing, right? And that's what it comes down to. It's thinking long-term. It's not, it's not thinking short-term. And then as a church, as a global church, the GC, we could put tremendous pressure on the GC to also think um, not just as a, a, an ethic towards God and an ethic towards fellow man, but also encompass the land ethic, mm. right? Um, 
there's an enormous amount of power that we have as a global church in, in, in the influence that we have. And so I think that, you know, there are many things that come to mind that uh, if we incorporated a land ethic as a church that we could sponsor and we could do and we could be sort of on the forefront of that mm. without compromising our belief in a creator, without compromising uh, these things that we hold dear. It's not one or the other. We're so glad you tuned into this final episode on environmentalism and the church. We hope you were inspired to think more consciously and creatively about how to make changes beneficial to the planet, both personally and collectively. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible, as well as our guest, Dr. Daniel Gonzalez Sokolowski. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next week.